So there's something really special about childhood and it makes humans in particular go way out on the end of the distribution in terms of how immature we are as children and how much investment as a group, as a species, we have to put into just keeping those children alive. So the sort of vague general idea to start out with was, well, just having more time to learn might be the advantage of childhood. But when you look at, especially at neuroscience, you see that it isn't just that children are sort of around for longer, they really have foundationally different kinds of forms of brain and forms of learning compared to adults. An unusually long childhood, and an unusually long elderhood past the age of reproductive activity. Why do we spend so much time playing and exploring, caregiving and reflecting, learning and transmitting? What were the evolutionary circumstances that led to our unique life history among the primates? What use is the undisciplined child brain with its tendencies to drift, scatter, and explore in a world that adults understand in such very different terms? And what can we transpose from the study of human cognition as a developmental stage-wise process to the refinement and application of machine learning technologies? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we talked to SFI external professor Allison Gopnik, professor of psychology and affiliate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. Author of numerous books on psych, cognitive science, childhood development. She writes a column at the Wall Street Journal, alternating with Robert Sapolsky. Slate said that Gopnik is where to go if you want to get into the head of a baby. In our conversation, we discuss the tension between exploration and exploitation, the evolutionary origins of human cognition, the value of old age, and she provides a sober counterpoint about life in the age large language machine learning models. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all of our references at complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Lastly, we have a bevy of summer programs coming up. Join us June 19th through the 23rd for Collective Intelligence, Foundations, and Radical Ideas, a first-ever event open to both academics and professionals with sessions on adaptive matter, animal groups, brains, AI, teams, and more. Spaces limited. Apps close February 1st. Or apply to participate in the Complex Systems Summer School. Or the Graduate Workshop on Complexity in Social Science. Or the Complexity Gains UK program for PhD students. Links to more information for all of these programs are available in our show notes. Thank you for listening. Alison Gopnik, I have long waited for this, <laughs> and I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for being on a Complexity podcast. Well, very happy to be here, Michael. Let's start by walking people back into your own history and into the story of how you became the researcher that you are now. What animates the questions that you're asking? What's the origin of all of that? So I began philosophy undergraduate honor student, and I thought that I was just going to stay in philosophy. That was completely my focus. And to some extent, that's been true for my entire career. That hasn't changed. And indeed, I'm still an affiliate in the philosophy department at Berkeley. And the philosophical question that I really cared about was what you might call the problem of knowledge. So that problem is, how is it that we know as much as we do about the world around us? After all, 
all that reaches us from that world is just a stream of photons at our eyes and streams of molecules of air at our ears. And yet we seem to understand that there's an abstract world full of people and places and things and leptons and quarks. And the question is, how do we ever manage to do that? And that's one of the great classic philosophical questions going back to Plato and Aristotle. And I thought that a good way to actually answer that question was to look at children, because children are the people who do that. In point of fact, they're the ones who actually manage to learn as much about the world as they do. So seeing what they did, I thought then, and I continue to think this day, is a really important method for trying to answer that big question about how we know about the world. So that was the sort of inspiration. And it turned out that even though I was a philosophy honors, I still had taken a whole bunch of psychology classes and I ended up with a psychology major sort of accidentally as well. And then I went to Oxford for graduate school and I was spending half of my time down in, believe it or not, Logic Lane, which is where the Oxford philosophy department is. And the other half up in Summertown, those are the villas where women and children were parked back in the old days of Oxford. Oxford is very geographically divided. The closer you are to the river, the older and more prestigious the enterprise that you're involved in. I think classical epigraphy is like the top of the, of the pecking. But developmental psychology and children are pretty low. And what I discovered was that I was spending all of my time with two different communities of people, and I could spend the rest of my time with them. One community of completely disinterested seekers after truth who cared more about finding out about the world than pretty much anything else. And another community of spoiled, egocentric people who needed women to take care of them all the time. And since the first community was the babies and the second community was the philosophers, I figured I'd actually rather spend the rest of my life with the babies than the philosophers. So what happened was that at that point, I switched from being primarily in philosophy to becoming a developmental psychologist and actually looking at what children do that enable them to learn as much as they do. And then in the past 20 years or so, I've extended that question to thinking about AI and computation. Because, of course, it's the central question, especially for the modern versions of AI that rely so much on machine learning. How can we have a, a computational system of any sort that could go out and learn about the world? And again, I think children are the kind of demonstration case that such a system actually exists. And if we understood what they did, we'd be able to answer some of these philosophical and computational questions. Wonderful. Well, to launch this off, Let's lens this through your piece in Filtrans B 2020, Childhood as a Solution to Explore Exploit Tensions. I love a good review paper. I love a paper that just brings it all together. And this is one of those. And can you help people understand how weird we are as human beings? As I say, I started out asking this question about what we could learn from children about how learning is possible. But there's another kind of meta question, which is why is it that children especially seem to have these incredible learning capacities? And that's connected to a broader question, which is why do children exist at all? Why do we as humans have this long period of immaturity? And the more I started looking at the sort of evolutionary biology background for this, the more striking it is because we actually have a childhood that's twice as long as that of our closest primate relatives. Chimpanzees, by the time they're seven, are producing as much food as they're consuming. And even in forager cultures, we aren't, humans aren't doing that until at least age 15, if not later. So that's really puzzling. Why do we have this very long period of childhood? And then it turns out that, in fact, this isn't just true about humans. There's a very general relationship between how long a period of childhood an animal has, and how many neurons it has, how big a brain it has, anthropomorphically, how smart it is, certainly how much it relies on learning about the world. And in evolutionary biology, people have talked about the idea that it is that long protected period that actually enables you to learn as much as you do. So there's something really special about childhood, and it makes humans in particular go way out on the end of the distribution in terms of how immature we are as children and how much investment as a group, as a species, we have to put into just keeping those children alive. So the sort of vague general idea to start out with was, well, just having more time to learn might be the advantage of childhood. But when you look at, especially at neuroscience, that it isn't just that children are around for longer, they really have 
foundationally different kinds of forms of brain and forms of learning compared to adults. And many of these are actually things that might look like bugs, like not being very good at having focused attention, not being very good at long-term planning. Why would we do that? Why would we have this long period in our lives where we seem to be so incapacitated? And why would that be connected to our capacities for learning? So when I started doing the work in AI, one of the really very general ideas that comes across again and again in computer science is this idea of the explore-exploit trade-off. And the idea is that you can't get a system that is simultaneously going to optimize for actually being able to do things effectively, that's the exploit part, and being able to figure out, search through all the possibilities. So let me try to describe it this way. I guess we're a podcast, so you're going to have to imagine this. Usually I wave my arms around a lot here. So imagine that you have some problem that you want to solve or some hypothesis that you want to discover. And you can think about it as if there's a big box full of all the possible hypotheses, all the possible solutions to your problem, all the possible policies that you could have. For instance, you're in a reinforcement learning context. And now you're at a particular space in that box. That's what you know now. That's the hypotheses you have now. That's the policies you have now. Now, what you want to do is get somewhere else. You want to be able to find a new idea, a new solution. And the question is, how do you do that? And The idea is that there are actually two different kinds of strategies you could use. One of them is you could just search for solutions that are very similar to the ones you already have, and you could just make small changes in what you already think to accommodate new evidence or a new problem. And that has the advantage that you're going to be able to find a pretty good solution pretty quickly, but it has a disadvantage. And the disadvantage is that there might be a much better solution that's much further away in that high-dimensional space. And any interesting space is going to be too large to just search completely systematically. You're always going to have to choose which kinds of possibilities you want to consider. So it could be that there's a really good solution, but it's much more different from where you currently are. And the trouble is that if you just do something like what's called hill climbing, you just look locally, you're likely to get stuck in what's called a local optimum. So you're likely to get into a position where every small change you can make is going to make things worse. So it's going to look like you're just should stick, stay where you are. But these big changes could have made things better. And the way that typically gets resolved in various kinds of forms is start out with this big, broad search through lots and lots of possibilities, jump around from one possibility to another, and then slowly cool off and narrow down. And the metaphor that's often used is this metaphor about temperature. So you could think about big boxes, if it had air molecules in it instead of hypotheses, a low temperature search would be just a search where you weren't moving very much. The high temperature search would be this big, much noisier, more random, bouncy kind of search. And I like to say sometimes for anyone who has a four-year-old at home, which of those sounds more like your four-year-old? Four-year-olds are both literally and metaphorically noisy and bouncy. So the solution is start with this big, broad search. The disadvantage, of course, is that you're not you might be spending time ask, trying out really weird, strange things that aren't going to help you very much. And then when you see something that looks like it's in the right ballpark, narrow in to the cooler solution. So it's like what happens in metallurgy with annealing, where you heat up a metal first and then gradually cool it to end up with a more robust metal. Okay, sorry, that's a long description. But of course, if you're thinking about childhood from that perspective, from the perspective of that kind of explore-exploit contrast, or from the perspective of the high temperature, low temperature annealing, then a lot of the things that look like bugs turn out to actually be features. So actually doing a lot of random variability, being noisy, having a broad focus of attention instead of a narrow focus of attention. All those things that are really not good from the exploit perspective, when what you want to do is just implement that policy, say, as quickly and effectively as you can those things all turn out to be real benefits from the explore perspective. What you want is to learn as much as you can about the world and explore as many possibilities as you can. And what my lab and a bunch of other labs recently have been doing is showing that you can show even formally that children are making those kind of high temperature explore decisions compared to adults. So there's evolutionary backstory that you posit in this paper. I think that's it's really interesting to to ask into that question 
why is it precisely that the human childhood is so much longer than the childhood of our fellow primates? And you say here, it is plausible that increased environmental variability was associated in particular. Yeah, I'm thinking of the paper that David Wolpert and David Krakauer just recently wrote in response to sort of condemnation of noise. Yeah. And uh, Daniel Kahneman and his co-authors and how they're saying, well, when you don't know what the problem is, you need to leave it open for a while. There's this thing that's going on where it seems like we have taken the shape of our ancestral, unpredictable environment that we are like in some way, our plasticity is the consequence of our having been subject to climate shifts and migratory forced movement over the surface of the planet. Speak to that, please. It's interesting, Michael. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I think it is interesting that someone like Danny Kahneman is anti-noise, right? Because the perspective of grown-up cognitive psychologists in the sense of people who mostly study the cognitive psychology of grown-ups And in fact, the whole field that Kahneman was one of the founders of, judgment and decision-making, that's about judgment and decision-making. It's not about learning and exploring. It's about once you have the information that you have, how do you actually go out and make the right kind of decision? And that's been the focus of so much energy and beautiful work in grown-up adult cognitive psychology. And I think it's interesting, as you say, that of course, from that perspective, noise is the enemy. And Danny's new book is about noise being the enemy. Again, this is a classic explore-exploit trade-off, if you're thinking about it not from the perspective of judgment and decision-making, not from the perspective of adult cognitive psychology, where the job really is go out and make good decisions quickly and effectively, but think about it from the perspective of child psychology, where the job is to explore as many possibilities as you can, then having a lot of noise and variability actually turns out to be crucial. It turns out to make a lot of sense. And it makes sense to have a system that can do both. That can start out being noisy and variable, but also is capable of narrowing in later on. Now, in terms of your point about what was the evolutionary trigger for this, I think as always with evolutionary explanations, the best answer, especially for humans who evolved so distinctively so quickly, the best answer is a kind of cascade effect. So there is some evidence that there were changes in the ecological context, things like, because of things like climate variability. So, you know, now we cause climate change in the past, climate change caused us. But part of the, what happened is that as a response to that, you also get humans being able to do things like design their own environmental niche to alter the environment in ways that other primates, for example, don't. So systematically altering the world that we're in. And we also have humans being involved in cultural transmission so that one group could find something out and pass it on to another group. And as you mentioned, one of the things that's really distinctive about humans from the time we evolved is that we're very nomadic. So, you know, the primates are still pretty much in the same places in Africa that they evolved in. And as soon as we were human, we were going out and moving. And you put all that together. And what it means is not only were there the ecological changes in the environment, but we humans ourselves change our environment with each generation because we alter the environment and then we move around from one environment to another. So all that means that there's this kind of cascade of being sensitive to environmental variability. And then finally, because humans are such a cooperative social species, and again, there's a kind of interesting cascade here. People like Sarah Hurdy have said, it's precisely because we have to take care of those helpless children for so long, that requires a tremendous capacity for altruism and cooperation. And then because of that, understanding all the different ways that your social world could be organized, that becomes another source of variability. So even if it started out with just the climactic variability, then you have the environmental variability that comes from humans altering their environment, you have cultural variability, and you have this kind of nomadic variability. And that all makes for a story, an environment in which early plasticity and learning is going to be really fingered. I'm curious because I've thought about this even before I encountered your work. It struck me that I re- linking back to the 2018 working group or workshop here at SFI on developmental biases in evolution, that there was 
a lot of discussion at that working group, or rather, at that workshop on the like a pitamorphosis, a trend towards neoteny that has hooks in the fact that evolution is lazy and that it's easier to lose traits than it is to evolve new complex traits. And I think about like, for instance, how the difference between vertebrates and our sister group, like the tunicates or sea squirts, which start as free-floating swimming larval forms with a head, but then eventually they settle down and they anchor themselves to something and they filter feed. That also has to do with the fact that basically they're just trying to find a sort of stable, predictable environment within which they can be embedded and then just implant themselves and up a flow of nutrients. But then there's this other strategy, which is you never settle down. You never develop that. And so in a way, like being vertebrates, being mobile adults, seems like we were already preconditioned toward a sexually mature juvenile or larval form of our ancestral creature. There's a couple of things there. One of them that I think is really worth emphasizing relevant to the other SFI workshop and other things that people in SFI have thought about is the general idea that often evolution is selecting for what biologists call life history. The evolution, instead of selecting for here's what the adult form is going to be like, here's the morphology of this animal, instead of selecting for developmental changes in the developmental trajectory. And they often end up having consequences, obviously, for what the adult animal is like. And I think that it fits very well with this story about childhood. And another point to make is that you mentioned the sea squirts, this general phenomenon of having plasticity early on and then less plasticity later. That doesn't just seem to even be applicable to creatures that have sophisticated brains like ours. There's beautiful work by a biologist named Emily Snell-Rood some of which is in that same special issue of, of Filtrons, that shows that butterflies, in monk cabbage white butterflies, you see the same kind of difference. So butterflies don't learn very much. They're not terribly smart, even as insects go. But there is nevertheless a difference between the ones who are just completely relying on their innate reflexes, find a leaf that's green and just plant your eggs there, and ones that are actually picking out different kinds of leaves depending on the concentration of different chemicals there or whether there's already competition and making this more learned kind of decision about planting their eggs. And it turns out that's correlated with how long a period of maturity they have. So even for butterflies, they're producing fewer young and giving them a longer chance to mature when they rely on learning. And Emily's made this argument even about oak trees, that you think about something like a plant's root system as being a way of trying to explore the potential in the environment, that you see this relationship between the complexity of that and then the fact that the oaks take a long time to grow, to become an acorn takes a long time to become a mighty oak, partly because it has to send out a root system that's going to be able to maximize the environment it finds itself in. So this seed does seem to be a very general, this does seem to be a very general strategy across many different kinds of organisms. And then the last thing that you mentioned is that there's an old argument about human adults being like neotenous apes. So the argument is that part of what makes even adults different from some of our primate relatives is that we're more childlike, we're more plastic, we can learn more, we vary more. But I do think that is only true, that's not true in comparison to human children. I think human children and adolescents are really the kind of cutting edge for that kind of distinctively human intelligence. So there's a point in this paper where you talk about a study where see, we told them there's white blocks and black blocks. There's a combination of blocks that they can place on this thing, some of which will lead to rewards. Some of the blocks have costs. And you say that after one negative trial, adults quickly assumed the most obvious rule and avoided the costly blocks but then they never received evidence that showed that the actual rule was more complex and they failed to learn the correct rule and they fell into a learning trap. Whereas preschoolers, by contrast, continued to try all the blocks on the machine. And this strikes me that there's something like a scaling law going on here. Like also where you say elsewhere in this this paper that 
more than 60% of four-year-olds' calories go to the brain at rest compared to 20% for adults. So I'm thinking of Chu and Evans, the controversial slowed canonical progress in science paper. And this question of like, if we want to think about just to dip out of talking about individual humans for a moment and talk about the collective process of knowledge discovery or construction, it seems that we have reached a mass at which we bling around in the same way that you're seeing people in these experimental settings. I'm curious what your thoughts are on all that. Well, I think there's a really interesting question about how adult science works in relation to these ideas. And my, my first book was called The Scientist in the Crib. And one of my slogans is that it's not that children are little scientists, it's that adult scientists are, are basically big children. And I think there's some evidence for that. So I think part of what may be happening is that in individual circumstances, we're able to use these kind of broader, more plastic learning mechanisms that we see. And I think often what you'll see is a sort of cycle where within an individual scientist or within a scientific community for a scientific research program, you have this early period where everything's up for grabs. It, there's a revolution. Everyone's trying different kinds of things. And then it narrows into something that looks more like normal science, where the problems have been pretty well specified and people work through the specific those specific problems. And then, again, the classic Kuhnian idea about paradigm shifts, what a paradigm shift is really is a search in the broader space, right? So what happens in a paradigm shift is instead of just filling in the details in your local search, you do this big, broad search and you end up in a really different part of the space. And I think that's you could see interesting parallels between what's happening in a social setting. And I think James Evans' work is a really nice example of that and what you might see in an individual setting of an individual child, say. But I have to say, I think I've been working on a paper with Willem Frankens, who's an evolutionary biologist who's done a lot of really beautiful modeling work. And it's interesting that even though there's intuitions about the developmental progress of expo exploration and exploitation are all over the place, there really needs to be a lot of work to try and specify in more detail just what environmental situations are going to lead to what developmental trajectories with what sort of consequences. Because there certainly are examples, or there are counterexamples of something like cephalopods, for instance, like the octopus, who are very smart animals who don't live for very long, only live for about a year, don't really have a childhood at all. So there's this question about what's going on, how are those kinds of creatures resolving these kinds of tensions. And I think there are other ways that you can do it. And science, in a way, is a nice example of this. So, for example, you could have a, instead of having a developmental division of labor where my young self is exploring and I'm exploiting, you could have a division of labor, division of labor where some people are exploring and some people are exploiting. And that seems to be what insects are doing, for example. So, for honeybees, you have different kinds of roles of the scouts. And the scouts are being fed by everybody else, like they're being nurtured by the workers, but you still have the same kind of trade-off there for the whole hive between the exploration and the exploitation. And I think to some extent in human societies, when you end up with institutions like science, the scientists are like the honeybee scouts. They're given this special role of functioning like the children and actually exploring. The developmental strategy has a nice advantage though, which is that you don't have to worry about free riders because you're the same organism, right? So your exploration is going to be used to help you from an evolutionary point of view. It's going to be used to help you continue to survive in the future. So you don't have to worry quite as much about some of the group selection problems that you have if you're trying to think about an entire society. Yeah, it's funny because I, I think about it. You say here, Younger children also remember information that is outside the focus of goal-directed attention better than adults and older children. And of course, I'm thinking of all of my adult neurodiverse friends that are just casting a very wide net. Within a few days, I'll be interviewing Danny Bassett and Perry Zern about their book, curious minds and these different strategies that people take as they explore the busybody or the hunter or the dancer, the way that people move across these graphs of knowledge. And yeah, it strikes me that it does seem to be, like you said, even within our own very, very childlike species, a great deal of variability 
For instance, I know that certain members of my family don't really consider dreams to be of any interest. And those people, for what it's worth, also seem to be the ones that are most capable of performing in the business world. Yeah. (laughs) They achieve results and they have a very narrow focus. And yet they are completely uninterested in like the hermeneutics of a dream interpretation and this kind of thing. And so it strikes me, yes, when they say it takes a village. Two things to say about that. One thing that's interesting is I think there's a pretty good argument that dreaming is also serving this kind of explore exploit function. So, you know, there's an old perception that childhood imagination and dreams and poetry, going back to Shakespeare, are all sort of similar enterprises. And in fact, I think there's some functional reason to believe that just like the fact that the children are incompetent is in fact a feature in terms of their being able to explore, that the fact that you shut down your motor system when you're asleep actually is a bug in terms of going out and getting things done. But it's a feature in the sense that then your brain is free to do this kind of exploration and consolidation that happens when you're dreaming. So I think there's quite an interesting analogy, and other people have suggested this as well, between the cycles we have between waking and sleeping and this sort of developmental cycle between childhood and adulthood. But another thing to say is because I talk a lot at Berkeley, so I'm talking a lot to people in Silicon Valley and so forth, and almost invariably the question that people ask is, well, how can we get adults to be more like kids? How can we be more exploratory, more creative? And I think there's a real downplaying of the fact that People getting out and using logistics to actually make things happen effectively, that's an incredibly valuable skill. And maybe because the writers and scientists tend to be the people who don't have as much of that skill, we downplay it compared to the skills that childhood exploration. But that exploit part as adults is really important. That's what actually enables the children to flourish because someone has to go out there and actually focus and get the resources and make things happen out there in the real world. So even though in some sense my sympathies as a dreamy scientist are with the four-year-olds, we would not want to be in a world that was run by four-year-olds. You need, you really need to have that kind of capacity for long-term planning, for executive function. All those are really genuinely important skills. And the question is, how do you negotiate this trade-off between those skills and these other complementary skills of exploration and possibility? And one thing that I think is I've been getting interested in historically is that you often see cultures setting up the idea of these kind of cycles where you'll, an example that I like is the fact that in medieval Japan, for example, the assumption was that you would be a shogun or a king and you would go out in the world and do things up to a certain point, and then you would retreat and become a monk. So then you could actually go and be in the monastery, be a monk who's doing this kind of exploration thinking without actually having to make anything in particular happen. And then maybe you go back to being a shogun again. And I think that's a nice model for human adults as well, where instead of thinking about just doing one thing or another, we do these things in cycles. And I think lots of scientists will report, this is certainly true for me, that there's about a 10-year interval where you find a new problem, it's really interesting, you do a lot of work on it. If you just found the new problem, that would not be useful because you wouldn't have actually done the work of going out and doing the experiments and checking to see if the hypothesis was right. But then there's a point at which you just get bored and feel like, I don't want to do one more. Back in the 80s, I was one of the first people to do what's called theory of mind research, which has become very popular now. And I can remember thinking, I don't want to do another false belief task. Like, please let someone else do that, which indeed they have been doing for the last 30 years. So I think you have some of these same cycles, even in your career as a scientist, where you start out exploring, you exploit for a while, and then you go back to exploring. So yeah, in that the question of trade-offs, something that I feel very viscerally is that our current world is one of just profound, unprecedented, extraordinary novelty production. And I don't want to jump ahead too quickly here into the AI discussion, but I have a lot of artist friends that are staring down the barrel of these image generation tools that some of them think are going taking food out of their mouths and others of them are very excited about. And the question of like, what do you tell someone growing up now to study? Like, how do you teach someone 
that is growing up in a world that is changing as fast as our world is a curious question. And then appended to that, there was a fabulous episode of the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast a few years ago on the dark side of neuroplasticity, talking about NMDA antagonists and people trying to reopen the critical learning window in their adulthood so that they could learn another language. And they said it was basically like opening the hood of your car and just pouring the oil everywhere. They said, you don't know what you are rewiring. We don't have a targeted way of doing this. But at the same time, everywhere we look, it seems as though the pressure is on to encourage lifelong learning because people are being routinely displaced economically. They're being shuffled around geographically. And so I'm curious how you your reflections on the challenges facing modern adults in a world that seems as though it is demanding a paradox that requires both more executive function and also more plasticity. Yeah. I mean, I think that, of course, is the challenge of the kind of work that you do as an adult in general. So again, to think about the example of science, you want to keep that plasticity. You have to organize, run your lab and go out and get grants and do all those kinds of executive function capacities. And the question is, how can you manage to keep both of those things happening? I think it's interesting, again, that if you look across cultures, there's traditions of activities that people perform that are really designed to induce a kind of plasticity. You mentioned NMDA, and I think there's pretty general consensus that the mechanism by which, say, psychedelics are therapeutic is through this induction of plasticity. That seems to be essentially what chemicals do. And again, the problem is once you've induced plasticity, once you're in this high temperature state, how do you cool off and where do you cool? And I think independently of chemicals, things like religious practices, mysticism, meditation, those are all examples of things that people have done as long as people have been around as adults that have the effect of putting them back into this kind of state of plasticity of children. But again, the problem is you can't be in that state indefinitely as an adult. You need to be able to also be in the cooler exploit state. And what happens, which is why things like integration with psychedelic therapy seems to be so important. You need to be able to make sense out of the experiences that you've had in order to actually make them be useful or helpful to you as you're going on in life. But I do think that the real work has always been done and will continue to be done by having new generations of children, by having new generations of young people who are coming in, seeing the new world and new environment from scratch with these, this kind of broad exploration and making sense out of it and then taking the things that they make sense of and they discover and applying them to the next set of problems that they're going to have to solve. I'd like to take this opportunity to peg into this other article that you wrote for the American Psychological Society. The Love Lets Us Learn, Psychological Science Makes the Case for Policies That Help Children. You're talking about the role of childhood adversity in the variability of rates at which a brain might age. To constrict this back again to looking at what does this look like in terms of the ontogeny of an individual? There's two leaves here. One is adversity as a driver of neoteny, and then one is adversity as as curtailing childhood. I'd like to hear you unpack that for people. Sure. I've gotten increasingly interested in, as it were, the flip side of this childhood plasticity. And that flip side is that you need to have adults who are caregivers. And again, one of the things that's very distinctive about us as humans is that we have a much wider range of caregivers for children than any other species does. So not only do we have biological mothers who are taking care of children, but we also have pair-bonded fathers. Very unusual. Only about 5% of mammals have pair-bonded fathers who are involved in caring for the... And we have what Sarah Hurdy, the great anthropologist, calls alloparents, which means people who are not biological kin who are involved in caring for the young. And we also have my personal favorite postmenopausal grandmothers. So we have this extra 20 years of life past around age 50, again, very different from, say, chimpanzees, 
And there's a lot of argument that those extra years, even though they're not directly producing young, are helping the young to survive. So we have this very wide range. And not only that, but we also take that kind of caregiving and we can extend it not just to children, but to elders or to friends or to the ill. So that capacity to care for others seems to be really very deep and important in human beings, and particularly that capacity to care for children. What kind of function does that serve? And it seems to me that it's a kind of complement to the childhood plasticity is to have adults who are giving signals that the world is safe, that you don't actually have to go out and do things and accomplish things you don't have to exploit. And that gives you the resources and capacity to explore. And I think there's a number of people who recently have been suggesting in some data to support this, that when those signals aren't there, or when the caregiving is unpredictable, or when resources are scarce, or when the world has full of threats and difficulties, then that actually affects this developmental transition. And in particular, somewhat counterintuitively, what it seems to do is accelerate the rate of development. So it seems to accelerate this explore-exploit shift. And of course, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense, right? If you're getting signals that say life is going to be short and there aren't a lot of resources around and there aren't a lot of caregivers who are going to nurture you, it makes sense to move into this state of, okay, let me figure out how to make my way effectively in the world rather than being in the state of exploring and learning as much as you can. And empirically, that seems to be what happens. So adversity seems to lead to this speeding up of the developmental process, both in terms of psychology and certainly in terms of brain and neural development. And one of the things that I've been working on right now, we have a group at the Center for Advanced Studies that's trying to think about caregiving. And one of the, just as children were very neglected in thinking about these, a lot of these philosophical and computational problems for a long time, caregivers have been very neglected as a, from an intellectual perspective. They've been just undervalued and overlooked in general. But if you look through books of philosophy or psychology, the example I particularly like is moral psychology, where people have done enormous amounts of work about the psychological origins of our morality. And yet this very central moral domain that most of us are in about how do you care for the people that you're close to? How do you care for children? How do you care for elders? Just is invisible in moral psychology. So I think thinking about how care works and how caregiving works and how it would work, for example, if we had intelligent AI systems, I think that's a very important and very underthought through set of problems. Since you're saying it, let's go there. The question of AI, the question of its relationship as a cultural technology to the rest of us as living, sentient, sapient agencies in the world. I really appreciated the sobriety of your position on this in the talk that you recently gave at SFI. And I'd like to hear you unpack that for folks in this as well. So one of the debates, of course, that comes up as soon as you're thinking about things like artificial intelligence is, is what does it mean to have an artificial agent or the model that we think of, understandably, is we think of a model of us, right? That we have somehow are going to have individual agents who are going out in the world and and doing things. And I think that's a very bad model for the big advances that we actually have had in AI, which I think most people in AI would agree is misnamed that if we could go back again, that's not the right artificial intelligence really isn't the right word to describe the great computational and technological advances that we've had. On the other hand, you might not have been able to get as many column inches if you'd called it statistical learning from large data sets, which is actually <laughs> what which is actually what it is. But what I've argued is instead of thinking about something like ChatGPT as if it was an agent and then debating whether it's an intelligent agent or not, the right way to think about it is as a kind of cultural technology. What do I mean by cultural technology? You think about things like writing, print, language, libraries, all these kinds of technologies we have that enable us to take information from many different people and give it to a new generation. So Lots of people have argued, and I think this is probably right, that cultural evolution is one of our most distinctive forms of intelligence. Again, and children are the ones who are doing this. The fact that each generation of children can take all the information that all those previous generations have discovered and use it themselves without having to rediscover it, that's like a great human superpower. And one of the interesting things that we've done really, again, since the evolution of language is 
to find new ways of making that transmission of information from one person to another more effective. So if you think about the difference between writing and speaking an oral language, when you have writing, then you can get information not just from the people who are within your immediate purview, but from people way off in the past, from people in many different places, distant in space and in time. And what's happened is I think there's a very good case to be made that those cultural technologies just time and again have had really deep transformative effects on our society. An example I like is that there were these changes in printing technology in the 18th century that made it much easier for basically anybody could go out and get a printing press and print pamphlets and distribute them. And those technology was really responsible for the American Revolution. A lot of the ideas about democracy and the Enlightenment got spread through these pamphlets. On the other hand, as the great historian Robert Darton has pointed out, in France, that same technology led to this just absolute spew of libel and obscenity and things that make Twitter and Facebook, even at their worst, look pretty tame by comparison, also led to the distribution of ideas about democracy and enlightenment, but it ended up in France taking a much less beneficent form than it did in America. So that's an example where you have a new technology and it makes a big difference. So I think the way we should be thinking about things like GPT is it's more like a kind of medium than it's like an agent that's going out and being intelligent. And you mentioned the artists. I really like this. I was talking about exactly this sort of problem with my brother who's an art critic, and he quoted an artist friend of his who said, oh, these Things like Dali are wonderful because they will immediately tell you, here's the cliche that you should avoid. So if Dali can generate it, that means it's looked at and it's found all the images that all those trite illustrations are using. And here's like a summary of the most trite, boring, cliche thing that you could imagine. So if you're really an artist, make sure you avoid that. And she was saying, of course, that's the hardest thing to do is to avoid just copying the banal stuff that everybody else has done. So she thought Dolly was a really great aid from that perspective. And I think that's generally true. Famously, Plato and Socrates thought that writing was going to be a really bad idea because when you saw the thing that was written down, you'd think that it was actually, it actually had an authority that it didn't because all of it was a summary of what someone else had thought. Now, I don't think that's true for all of AI. Work on robotics, for example, is developing agents that I think look more like the kinds of agents that biologically developed in the Cambrian explosion, agents that can actually interact with the world, who, that have eyes, that have claws, that are moving around, that are embodied, as people say. I think that's a closer analogy to real intelligence. But of course, if you hang out with people in robotics, the roboticists are just not even in the ballpark of being able to get something that can even just do some of the simple things that humans can do. Although again, they're using information about, say, childhood as a way of trying to solve that. But I think the big things like the large language and large image models, the way to really think about those is they're as powerful as they are because there's these millions of humans that they're crowdsourcing, millions of amounts of human knowledge, human images, human text. And those techniques are really just crowdsourcing what the, what the humans already know. It's not that they're going out and figuring things out and knowing things themselves. Yeah. So to zag back from that into the question of the implications for a modern person, I'm curious what you as a grandmother are recommending for your own grandchildren as far as their education into a world in which the landscape of these technologies is surprising us on almost a daily basis. Yeah. There's a wonderful paper that came out recently in Psychological Science that I I wrote about in my Wall Street Journal column. And it was a scientific version of a point that I've sometimes phrased by saying the day before you're born is Eden and the day after your children are born is Mad Max. So everybody seems to think that the things that happened before they were born, that's not technology, that's just life, right? But of course, the things that happen within your lifetime, especially after you're an adult, those are big technological changes and innovations. And in this paper, they discovered they made up something called aerogel. And they said, here's this technology and here's what it does. How harmful do you think it is? How beneficent do you think it is? And then all they did was change the date in which it was invented. (laughs) So it was either 15 years before the person answering the form was born or 15 years after they were born. And sure enough, (laughs) depending on where it was relative to you, 
the things that were happened before you were born were much more beneficent than the things that happened after you were born. And it's funny because, of course, we think of this, your first thought about this is, well, the anxieties, the moral panic about here's all the terrible things technology is going to do, especially to children, is overblown, which I think is actually true. But of course, you could make the argument the other way around, which is suppose you told someone means of transportation, it's going to be a little bit more uh, useful. It'll let you get around a little better, but it's going to lead to the end of the planet. And even independent of that, it's going to kill millions of people a year directly in accidents and more through pollution. Like you would say, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. That doesn't sound like a good technology. So I think part of it is that the technologies that we understand and learn about when we're young are really different from the ones we have later on. But there's another kind of interesting thing, which is if you think especially about these kind of cultural technologies, these media I think it's interesting that it's hard to think of a case of something that was important to people as a means of communicating or carrying on ideas from one person to another that's completely disappeared. So we still have dance. We still have live theater. We still have live music. Everyone thought, okay, those things are all going to disappear when you have film, for example. And they didn't disappear. And then once you had film, everyone thought, well, when you have TV, then film is going to disappear. And even if literal film has disappeared, the institution of movies hasn't disappeared. The form of movies hasn't disappeared. And when I look at my grandchildren, I'm struck that we're always battling with them about get away from the screens and don't do that video game and read a book. But the truth is they love reading books. They spend a lot of time reading books and going to theater and playing musical instruments. And they also spend a lot of time playing Fortnite and doing things on their iPads. And I have no doubt that they will very soon be using something like GPT. And they do that without quite thinking that's what they're doing. They're not thinking about it as mastering a new technology. They're just thinking about it as being in the world that they're in the first place. Interesting. So no concern then, really. I guess to me, it strikes that like some of the points about these trade-offs, again, to go back to the thinking of it as a scaling principle and that in the coarsest sense, when you are an adult, it's time to put the things of childhood behind you. And yet we live in a world that due to our technological intermediation has created a surface area. I heard David Krakauer describe the condition of modernity as that in which culture is learning ever faster than the individual. And so the individuals are falling ever further behind. There's a trade-off. To go back to your piece on the explore-exploit tensions, you mentioned in some research that Children appear to have the greatest advantage over adults when they must infer hypotheses that have an unusual abstract high-level structure. This makes sense from a computational perspective. High-level abstract schemas typically constrain low-level hypotheses and shape learners' interpretation of the data. And of course, now I'm thinking of the Jessica Flack and her work on coarse graining as downward causation. And Caleb Scharf talking about the data-ohm and how we're all serving this information architecture that we are embedded in, as William Gibson put it, like polyps in a coral reef across the planet. This is a speculative kind of final shot, but do you think that we are becoming in general more childlike by necessity? Do you think that we are, I don't know, like retreating into the embryonic in order to better network with one another and surf all of this change? I'm torn about that. And I want to say when you said, well, everything's fine, you don't have to worry. Of course you have to worry. You worry about anything that's coming up in your culture and in your time. Is, is a, I keep thinking about this quote in, in Lord of the Rings of all places about these may not be the times we want, but our job is to deal with the times that we have. So in any time, we have to have the responsibility for trying to work through what would be good and what would be bad in that time. And I think, the, again, the cultural technologies of the past are, can be quite illuminating from that perspective. So think about those 18th century pamphleteers. There aren't really any newspapers yet or magazines or any of the apparatus that we think of as being part of our modern journalism media apparatus. And what had to happen was that you had to have start inventing things like editors or journalists or newspapers, which took this great expansion of, again, this sort of the equivalent of the internet where anybody who wanted to could 
produce a pamphlet and spread it around and turn that into, oh, no, you don't want to get just anybody's pamphlet. You want to get the newspaper, which you have some reason to believe is going to be more accurate and more supported. And I think that's just been the history of human technology all the time, as we have another example that I like is think about electricity. So again, this is one of those ones where thinking about it from the perspective of sort of putting yourself in the past. But if someone came and said, we have this idea, this thing that we want to put in everybody's house, except that we know that it gets hot enough to burn down houses, but we still think it would be really useful to put it in everybody's house. So let's go ahead and do that. Well, it turns out that the reason why we can have that powerful force at everybody's house and houses aren't burned down all the time is because the insurance industry said, oh no, we've invented this thing called a circuit breaker and you can only get your house insured if you put electricity in, if you make sure that there's a circuit breaker there. I have a son who's a carpenter and he'll show you the book of code that's this thick about what you have to do to build a house. So the problem is that we haven't got like the code or the circuit breakers for something like Twitter or Facebook. And I think that we will, it's just going to be a matter of But it's not like it will just happen without anybody trying. People are going to have to work very hard to figure out how to make those technologies be productive versus not productive. But again, it does seem to me, if you think about, I think it is right that things are changing quickly now, but think about the difference between someone born in 1820 and 1860, right? So you go from the fastest thing in the world is fast horse to steamships, railways, the telegraph telegrams and trains. That's a much bigger shift in what your actual lived experience is than the shifts in the 20th century in computation. Now, computation itself is a big deal. That's a big change. But I think it's just very hard to tell how much the things that we live with in seem like bigger changes. With ChatGPT, for example, I was talking to someone the other day and thinking, we, you young folks, don't remember typewriters. So the shift from writing on a typewriter, let alone writing with a ballpoint pen, to writing on a word processor. That's a giant shift in the kind of intellectual work that you can do, right? That's a really, really big shift. And the shift to having internet search available, that's a giant search in the way that we use information. And because all of the people who are thinking about it now live or so on the other side of that shift, or at least most of those people are on the other side of that shift, it doesn't seem as surprising to think that, oh, I could take a big chunk of my article of my paragraph and I could move it to another place just with a click of a mouse, that doesn't strike anyone as being a big deal that's really changing the way that I interact with the world. It is a big deal. I think it's always very hard to judge exactly which kinds of things are going to make an impact and what kind of impact they're going to make. But the hope is that this framework of social norms, regulations, laws that human beings are very good at doing, that's the kind of counterpoint to our having this great capacity for technological innovation. The other thing to say, and again, this gets back to thinking about the logistics folks. I was just saw an interesting piece about the four-day week today. And someone was saying, well, what about school? What happens when you're a mom and your kids have to go to school five days a week? How's that going to play out in four-day week? And someone pointed out most of the jobs in the United States, for example, are service industry jobs. They're things like being a teacher or being a childcare worker or being a healthcare worker, taking care of other people, or for that matter, working in restaurants, cutting hair. And of course, we don't think about all those as being because it's us talking, right? Like it's the people in the information economy who are worried about GPT coming and taking our jobs. I don't think we think as much about the fact that a lot of the activities that humans are engaged in are activities that we've always been engaged in, like especially taking care of and connecting with other humans. And I think those things are going to continue to be very distinctively, those are going to continue to be things that that humans are really good at in a way that artificial systems are going to have a much harder time, a much harder time doing. But again, we don't pay as much attention. We don't valorize those aspects of human intelligence as much as we do the sitting at our study and writing things down and playing with computers part. Yeah. So there's three little flags I want to plant in all of that. One is conversation I had with Maria Del Rio Shinona about labor market displacements and her network science research at Oxford, exploring the landscape. Also, Penny Mealy has done work on this, on you know how as the, more and more things become automated, you know where the islands will be. The other 
is the 2020 paper, J1 Shin et al. There were a lot of SFI people on this. Mike Price, Dave Wolpert, Hajime Shimao, Brendan Tracy, and Tim Culler. Scale and information processing thresholds in a Holocene social evolution. And that's another angle that speaks to the diastolic, systolic kind of rhythm that we see between a growing population and then the need for, I like this, the analogy of the circuit breaker, the new norms, the new regulatory structures that we put in place for this stuff. And then to anchor that somewhat concretely, we have Matthew Jackson's recent research on Facebook showing that you can curb disinformation not through censorship, but simply by throttling the reach that like if you can limit the number of times a post is shared or the number of people to whom it is shared, that the problem takes care of itself. And so I wonder if we've maybe overshot just a bit, but we're going to find our level as far as the scale at which we are capable of thinking with one another and that the circuit breakers we're putting into place will restore a kind of mesocosm in the way that Wendy Carlin and Sam Bowles talked about the return of the civil society during the COVID pandemic, saying, saying that it's not just state power and market power now, it's neighborhood organizations, it's mutual aid networks. I think that's exactly right. There's an interesting example, again, who knows what's happening with Twitter at the moment, but there was a little change on, I had heard from the people who made it, of nice experiments by this, by David Rand and Gordon Pennycock showing that if you just say to people, read the, did you read this article before you shared it? That in itself changes misinformation. And if you say to people, could you just rank this other piece? How accurate do you think this is before you go ahead and click the share button? That makes people much less likely to share misinformation. My hobby horse about this, but I think I've other people have mentioned this as well as we have this really fascinating example in Wikipedia of something that we would not ever have thought would have succeeded, that you could have this kind of crowdsourcing of information and knowledge and have it mostly be good, have it mostly be something that people can go to and people can have a sense of whether, how you check it, but it's mostly a really good resource. And I have to say, I suspect the big difference is that it's a nonprofit organization. I think if you think back to the days of television programs, for example, the BBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, PBS, those produced better quality information by and large than the networks did, not universally. Sometimes they would be dull and the networks would produce something that was valuable. I think the real central problem is that we have a business model that, as people have pointed out, ends up amplifying because the business model is catching attention through advertising, there's no reason why the net has to have that, has to be designed according to that business model. And that business model ends up having a lot of negative consequences. And again, think about the internal combustion engine. The fact that there was a particular business model behind that has certainly had a lot to do with its consequences for good or ill. I think an idea that a lot of people have had and just needs to be, you need to figure out how to implement it is think about some of these things as being more alike public libraries or other kinds of more public utility kind of model for a lot of what we do with these cultural technologies, rather than thinking about them as basically a big advertising agency. For listeners, that has distinct hooks into the episodes that we did with Diane Coyle and Eric Beinhocker, where Diane Coyle was talking about her argument for reconsidering social media as public utilities. And also with Glenn Weil and Chris Moore recently, where Glenn has written extensively on how to create technologies that encourage the funding of public goods. But anyway, with that, I just want to thank you so much for this. And I would love to know, just in closing, what are the questions that are driving you right now? You say I'm young, but I'm watching my three-year-old and my one-year-old reading your work, and I have this distinct sense that I am the basalt and not the <laughs> molten lava. Where do you feel still molten in your questing? I think this set of ideas about caregiving is really interesting. And some of it came from just the policy questions about why is it, what do we do to make sure that 
caregiving is available for children, given this data that suggests how important, especially early caregiving is. But that just turns out to be a really interesting intellectual question. Even if you're thinking about something like the alignment problem in AI, how do you get another autonomous intelligent system and keep it being autonomous and yet give it the kind of structure and nurture that it needs to be able to grow in a beneficent way? I think that's a deep human problem we haven't thought about nearly enough. And that's a big area that I'm actually working on, including trying to work on some of that empirically, trying to figure out exactly what do we mean when we think about caregiving. And another piece of that, which is new for me, is actually thinking about elderhood from that perspective. One of the things that we know is just as the childhood is really distinctive, this last 20 years of elderhood for humans is really distinctive. And there's been some arguments by people like Michael Gervin that 20 years is really important for transmitting cultural information onto the next generation. That's a lot of what those grandmothers and grandfathers are doing, aside from working hard to keep the babies going. And again, from a pragmatic point of view, we have that we're going to have these giant demographics shifts with more and more older people in the world, in the society. And I think thinking about the kinds of distinctive intelligence, this may be also autobiographical, thinking about the kinds of distinctive intelligence that go with that period of life, I think is something that's really important and undervalued. I think in general, sorry about this, Michael, but we've tended to have this model where the 35-year-old man is the apex of intelligence. For some reason, a lot of 35-year-old men have written things that sound like this, sort of the apex of intelligence. And then childhood is just gradually building up to that 35-year-old man. And then elderhood is just gradually falling off of that state. And that doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. I think instead, you you know, one of my other slogans is that basically we're human up till puberty and after menopause. That's when we're doing the things that make us most distinctively human, like cultural transmission. And then in the meantime, we're glorified primates who are going out in the world and establishing their place in the dominance hierarchy and trying to find mates and doing all those things that are part of our broader biological inheritance. Now, I have to say, Preach. yeah, I said this for a while in a kind of mean way, which I didn't really think because, of course, I have 35-year-old children. And now I think find myself thinking, <laughs> oh, those poor 35-year-olds, those poor dear things, they have to have all this stuff they have to do. And the kids and the grandparents are just hanging around and telling stories and figuring out things that are going on in the world and playing and experimenting. We get the good parts and the poor regular adults have to do all the hard work. On that note, I will thank you for your hard work in doing this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. And just to say that I am right up there at the front of the line for the UBI check when the technological <laughs> unemployability ship comes in and we could have machines doing this podcast and it won't, it won't matter anymore. And then I can be delightfully economically irrelevant and get back <laughs> to just playing guitar all the time. That will be a day of glory. Could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Allison, for your work and for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.